It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and happy Sunday. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And to say that I'm excited about this conversation is an understatement because it is always great when you can bring your actual friends into a conversation um, and talk about how the work that we do, how it can empower our communities and other people. And then you hope that the things, the conversation doesn't fall off the rails or go off the rails as they say, um, because you're talking to your friends. Um, <laughs> so that is gonna be this episode this morning. Um, we are going to talk about passing a law and that you don't have to be the actual elected official to help usher a law all through the steps into uh, from a bill, from an idea, all the way to it actually being signed, um, that you can be very active in that process. And we're going to use as an example a very um, a, a timely topic of AI. And you've heard me on the show talk about uh, how I use AI in uh, my modern workflow. I was on Karen Hunter's show earlier this week talking about it. But as I was using it and being a techie and an earlier doctor, I was like, oh, I can use this as I'm working with campaigns and, you know, clients and stuff in, in, in my campaigns. And I was like, oh, wait, you can use this on political campaigns. <laughs> and I was like, I know what I would use it for, but knowing that there would be other people who may not have the same idea, may have nefarious reasons for using this technology. And we saw that immediately um, with the current president announcing his reelection and there was an immediate reaction that included the use of AI technology in the response. So I went searching for someone that I could bring to the front of the class this morning to have this conversation, not only about how uh, constituents, how regular people can be part of the bill making process, but then also I want to talk about the battleground of state legislatures that is happening all across the country where you see new laws popping up, some you agree with, some you might be out in the streets fighting against. And I thought of no better person. I tried to call his staff first, but then I had to like pull the pull the friend card and call him direct, like, and text him directly. And so I thought I would bring Senator Kevin Parker to the front of the class, who's no stranger, by the way, because, you know, he's a professor in his other life yes. <laughs> to come to the front of the class. He is a New York state senator representing the 21st Senatorial District of Brooklyn. He'll tell you the neighborhoods as part of his whole spiel. Welcome to the front of the class, Senator Kevin Parker. Thank you, Eldroy. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, okay, what neighborhoods is that again? Because, you know. I represent Flatbush, East Flatbush, Midwood, Dittmas Park, a um, little bit of Kensington, a little bit of Canarsie, but it changed recently. So I now have Canarsie. Um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not smooth with it yet. Canarsie, 
uh, Marine Park, Mill Basin, and um, Bergen Beach. And that's, you know, for folks who, you know, some people um, may only know Brooklyn and you think we're all like all the same. We are not all the same <laughs> like in Brooklyn. As I keep telling people, Brooklyn is the third largest city in the entire country, right? So after the rest of, Cal rest of New York City and then L.A., we're larger than Chicago, we're larger than Houston, we're larger than Atlanta, we're larger than Boston, we're larger than Philly, we're larger than Miami, right? Like, you know, it's almost 3 million people living uh, right here in Brooklyn. And so for those people who know Brooklyn, I'm kind of Church Avenue all the way down to King's Plaza. So um, if you think about that, that's that's my community. And, and and it's also it's like, you know, including, yeah, the Brooklyn you vision in your head all the way to like uh, the, the diversity in terms of ethnicity, yes. the diversity in terms of country of origin, yes. the diversity in terms of language, the yes. diversity in terms of political ideology Absolutely. is you know, Brooklyn is a microcosm of the rest of the country in terms of how many people and the, the diversity that exists. That's right. So I represent, you know, the largest um, population of Caribbean immigrants outside the Caribbean in the world, the largest concentration of, of Haitian Americans outside of Haiti, um, as we're on the verge of Dejume, which is Haitian Flag Day. Um, I represent the largest Pakistani community outside of Pakistan in the world, um, one of the largest um, populations of um, Orthodox Jews. Um, not necessarily all Hasidim, but um, very large Orthodox population. Um, you know, and then I have a very conservative kind of Republican leading um, kind of, you know, um, ethnic white community as well that I represent. Um, and so, you know, we run, we run the political gamut, um, as you indicated, the ethnic cultural language gamuts here. Um, not quite as, as diverse as, as uh, Queens. I mean, you have school districts. Oh, yeah. Like a hundred distinct languages are being spoken. Um, but it's still, you know, a lot more diverse than what you see in a lot of places across the country. Yeah, yeah. So it's been some time since we talked. And yeah. so I, I, you know, I want to ask you to see if you remember, and yes, I'm calling you old, okay. um, to see if you can remember your first civic action. Do you have a story to tell? I do. Um, so uh, I went to Penn State University uh, in the 1980s, and at that time, we were involved with um, trying to get our universities and other organizations to divest from South Africa. So this is going back to like circa 1987. And my first real civic action was a protest on the campus um, where we actually stopped people from registering for classes for a number of hours, for like a day, actually, um, and to bring attention to the fact that Penn State University had a large holding in corporations that um, did business with South Africa and we wanted them to divest. We eventually did get them to divest um, as numbers of college uh, campuses did uh, during that time. And so that was the my first real um, involvement uh, with civic action. I love that, you know, you can always chart people of a certain age mm -hmm. by what they <laughs> What things they were involved in when, you know, so you can guesstimate. Right. And um, I don't do this with all of my guests, but just you um, yes. guesstimate your age. <laughs> well, look, I'm very proud of my age, right? Like I'm, I just turned 56 in March. I'm still accepting gifts and and I'll, I'll put my oh, cash in that um, with people. Want. <laughs> I know such a young people. Do within, within limits, within, <laughs> with, within <laughs> senatorial <laughs> <laughs> limits right. don't right. be right. don't don't get brought up on charges right. <laughs> ignore me j cole 
Um, no, but um, but yeah. So I just turned fifty six. I've actually been in this office um, now for twenty years, and really thankful and grateful for um, the support of the people in my community. Um, Glenda Carr said, likes to say now that I've become the person I ran against, which is kind of metaphorically because I actually was an open seat when I ran. Um, but but I have essentially become uh, a long term incumbent, which actually um, for Black communities in particular is an important thing. Um, I went from being the youngest member of the state senate. Um, and I'm not the oldest member, but I am the fourth most senior member of the entire state Senate. I'm the most senior African-American member, um, uh, and I'm the majority whip, um, which means I'm kind of fourth in command in the, in the hierarchy. And that allows me an ability to address issues and to get resources and direct resources towards things that are really important for our community. And so I've been really proud of my record that even a year before um, Juneteenth was made a national holiday. We made it here a state holiday. I, I wrote that legislation, um, name, likeness, and image, um, which allows uh, college scholars and athletes um, to get money off of their name, likeness, and image. I passed that legislation. During the pandemic, um, we were able to do a moratorium that protected um, people from getting cut off and losing their services around not just water, gas, and electricity, but also telephone, cable, and internet. Um, and as you know, internet access is, is critically um, important. And so being able to um, be in a, in a space in which you can advocate for things um, behind the scenes has been really, really important. Um, we recently had a tough fight in the state of New York over um, our head of our, our of our appellate court, which is the, the, the you know, kind of top court um, in the state of New York. We now have for the first time an African-American um, chief judge um, I'm very proud to have been involved in that fight and advocating behind the scenes with the governor to make sure that the right candidate was chosen. He was not just um, the most senior person who had already sat on the appellate court, but somebody who had really important decisions. I don't even know him. I've never even met him. Um, but his work and his um, decisions and the things that he has done um, was really important. And, you know, being a voice um, in the back rooms in, this in these conversations, I think, um, I feel like it has put us in a position in which um, all of our communities are benefiting from it. So you said something um, there that I, I just want you to pause and talk about a bit more before we take a, our first break, mm -hmm. because you talked about, um, you know, Glenda sort of jabbing and saying you being the person <laughs> you previously ran against. And we are in an age where we have now um, uh, black elected officials or depending on your politics, elected officials in a way that have been in their positions for some time, be it in state legislatures, city councils, or even in Congress, right? Um, there's a conversation right now going on about a certain senator and whether or not she should resign <laughs> and right. let um, and, and let something move. What is the balance, right, of, um, you know, getting new blood, but also realizing that the legislatures, be it Congress or state legislatures, operate on seniority? Like, what right. is the balance that we're seeking then? Yeah. And, and this is an interesting conversation when you go outside of the state of New York, because different state legislatures and different city councils have different rules, right? So here in the state of New York, the New York City Council has term limits. So they can serve um, two four-year terms for a maximum of eight years. Um, we have no term limits in the state legislature, right? I'm actually anti-term limit. Not necessarily because um, 
you know, incumbency protection, but more um, because it really disadvantages Black and Latino communities. Because um, because when you're able to have somebody, when the seniority system is in place, members are able to stay there long enough um, to get empowered, which is part of why in the state of New York, you have an African-American speaker in the state assembly and an African-American majority leader um, in Andrea Stewart-Cousins, um, in part because they've been able to be there long enough to get the seniority to, to get elected. Um, we do have a, a African-American speaker in the city council, but she just got elected. Um, we really should have one longer than that, but the city, but having, again, term limits has been really, really hard. And so um, love Adrian Adams and glad that she got a chance to lead um, in that capacity, but it, it typically doesn't advantage black and Latino communities when you have um, term limits. It also gives a lot more um, power to the staff because the staff oftentimes has been there longer and has a lot more institutional memory um, than the members. It takes a while to kind of understand these things, especially in a place like New York, where literally our state budget, which we just passed at $229 billion, is the 12th largest economy in the world, right? And so understanding all the ins and outs and where the bodies are buried in the context of that budget, as you try to put money in to education, healthcare, housing, public protection, transportation, um, and then you know try to get that money to your community, uh, it takes you a while just to even kind of know where things are and, and how that process moves. And so um, when you when you have term limits that that you know uh, I think is is difficult. And I think that's part of the problem you've seen across across the country um, of not being able to um, you know, control certain things by state legislatures is because you have so, so many new people. Um, and also typically as you get newer people in, you get much younger people, which is again, not, not bad. Again, I was the youngest member of the state Senate, but I was also 33, 34 when I got elected. Um, people are coming in now a lot younger than that. And um, I think young people are great. And I think, you know, but you have to have a balance between having some people who are young and and idealistic and, and energetic, and having some people who actually understand the process and and know uh, not just the politics, but the pro but the process of how we pass legislation and how the state actually runs. Well, let's let's take that to something like Congress, right? Which is another body that currently operates on seniority, mm -hmm. right? And there's always moves to do uh, term limits in Congress, but if the rules are still the same that operates on seniority. I don't see how that works. Now, obviously, if you change and have term limits, that may change. But, I, you know, I don't know how that benefits us. But at the same time, there are sometimes you look at people and you be like, we willing you in. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe no, we should do something different. I ultimately believe in the voters. Ultimately, I, 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 I respect the voters. And I don't, I think that, having term limits doesn't respect the voters. I think it throws the baby out with the mm. ballot. And so you can you can talk about plenty of times in which you're just like members should have gone and whatever, but ultimately if voters are still choosing that person, it is, it is the will and the wishes of those voters to decide who their representative is. Not ah, so you're arguing that putting in term limits actually prevents a voter from saying, no, I consistently want this person to represent me in right. this body. And so by having a term limit, in, you're basically taking that option away. Correct. I see. Correct. Correct. I see. I see. And so, and so if you have people who are bad, like I can tell you now, George Santos is not going to win a re-election, right? Like he's just not going to win a re-election. And the people, you know, and if if he doesn't wind up in jail prior to that, the people will have decided that they want him or don't want him, right? And that's why the first thing I said is that's like I want to thank my voters because 
you don't get to be a 20-year incumbent because you're wonderful. You get to be a 20-year incumbent because you've proven to the people of your community that you still represent their interests and you're working hard on their behalf. And so I think that you know, we should continue to give people an opportunity to do that. And as long as they're being effective in their communities, you know, they should be able to continue to serve and, and bring that experience and that understanding um, and the relationships that they built over 10 years, 15 years, 20 years to bear on bringing resources back to that community. Right. So we're going to take a break here and then we're going to have the conversation about what I came to you about a couple of weeks ago and how other people can do the same. So we'll take a break here and we'll be right back. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I am here with Senator Kevin Parker, a New York State Senator representing the 21st, 21st Senatorial District in Brooklyn. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I will say, I was uh, playing around with my uh, tech apps and things, particularly with AI. And I had this like epiphany moment, I would say that um, I could use uh, these features, use these things as I'm helping to do campaigns, be they candidate-based campaigns or issue-based campaigns. And then also had the like immediate, like three second <laughs> epiphany that, hey, wait, no, other people can also <laughs> use this and they may be using it for nefarious purposes. And I tweeted that there should be a law with a disclosure that um, if AI is used for political and election related um, advertising and media, that there should be a disclosure. And I happened to text um, our guest here, uh, Senator Kevin Parker, and he was like, absolutely, there should be. And he was like, I'm about to introduce it. And he did. Um, talk a bit about the bill that you just recently introduced. Yeah. So as you know, um, Joy, I'm the, the chairman of the Energy and Telecommunications Committee um, in the Senate. I also sit on the Technology Committee. And so this is, you know, AI has been a hot topic for the entire legislative session that started in June. And so we've been kind of um, kind of having kind of small like work group conversations informally to talk about um, the impact of AI and, and, and trying to wrap our heads around it. And so, you know, it's a fine balance between, um, you know, between regulating things and protecting consumers and protecting the community and then also um, allowing this burgeoning industry uh, to flourish and to, to grow in the state. Uh, and so we've been kind of understanding it. This, you know, was seen like very common sense, obviously um, being an elected official, I understand um, political ads and what goes into that. And so this seemed like a very good first step. And so we drafted the bill uh, along with my legislative director, Tamara Tucker, um, actually my director of operations, uh, Tamara Tucker, and, um, you know, have put the bill forward. It's going to work through its committee process. Um, it's been introduced in the assembly as well. And so hopefully in the next three or four weeks, um, as we have the end of session, that we'll be able to get this bill, um, you know, pushed through. Um, but, you know, we, we get ideas from all kinds of places. Um, sometimes they come to me, um, uh, you know, through ideas, through things I'm seeing, through people stopping me in the street and being concerned about things. Um, and sometimes we just, we get calls, we get letters, um, you know, we get uh, advocacy groups who come and meet with me or may call me or text me and say, hey, um, I'm having a problem with this issue. Uh, is this something that the state legislature uh, can address? Uh, and so there's all kinds of ways that people can be involved um, in this process. 
I love this as an example of, because people um, do the thing where they elect you and then they walk away. Right. And um, I've told this story numerous times um, and, you know, the story about Al Van meeting a voter in the street and, you know, the voter telling him, I only see you during election time. And his response was like, I only see you during election time, too. (laughs) (laughs) Like, meaning that you're you're not engaging with me as well. And we're not fully using uh, people who we send to public office, being in city council, assembly center, what have you, that we don't talk to them and engage them for the good things and the bad things, right? Mm-hmm. To say, you know, I don't like what you did, but also I like what you did. But then right. also here is here is an issue that is affecting not only me personally, um, but can have an impact on the state, on the country, and we should do something about it. Um, and majority of legislation that passed, people think y'all are so smart <laughs> and are. that every <laughs> and everything comes from you. Right. But a lot, even in the state legislature, if I'm correct, like a lot of legislation that you guys are considering and passing or whatever comes from, as you mentioned, your constituents, your mm-hmm. other, you know, lobbying groups and organizations. This mm-hmm. doesn't always come out of your brilliant head. Yeah, it's probably it's probably. Most I would I would dare to say that probably 60 percent of the legislation that we put in comes from places outside of our offices and outside of our own zeitgeist. Like, you know, we're we are always those of us who are especially active. Um, like I'm a very active legislator. Like I you know, one of my mentors is Roger Green, uh, who was a former state assemblyman. And Roger used to always say to me, he said, you're a legislator, legislate. And so for me, anytime I'm confronted with a significant problem, the first thing I think of is, is there a way for me to change the law to address this? Sometimes it doesn't always come to that, but sometimes you put in a bill, not just because you think the bill is going to pass, but sometimes you put in um, a bill because um, you need to raise the the attention level of it, right? And so sometimes we'll put in a bill and start moving it because we know that'll get the attention of the governor. And sometimes they'll do an agency um, change in the regulations or procedures um, not to have us change the law. And so, um, you know, you have to kind of understand the, the various techniques that we have as legislators to address problems. I want to stay there one second because I've often said, um, you know, even about campaigns, if you're waging a campaign as a candidate, that you end up losing, whether you're an insurgent or an open seat or things like that, that there are some positives, even if you lose, right? Like, were you able to bring attention to issues or attention to a part of the district that had not been listened to? Like, there are a myriad of different things that your individual campaign can raise, even, you know, even if you lose, even if you're just doing it just to raise attention. So talk, stay right there where you're talking about introducing legislation and that it may not ultimately end up with a pin signing ceremony where the governor or the you know president is signing it into law but it can promote other things yeah absolutely uh, again sometimes you're looking just to raise um the temperature on something right like public discourse is really really important and there are tons of things that can be done um through the executive waving their hand and getting agencies to either change regulations or just change their internal procedures around things right and so um, sometime as a legislator, you'll reach out to them and you'll talk to them and they'll be kind of lukewarm about it. And sometimes you can't get the governor or the governor's staff to pay attention to it either. And so, again, if you put in a bill and you get a co-sponsor and you start moving it through committee, then they're like, oh, let's look at this. 
And a lot of times, for some reason, governors have this thing about not being told what to do. I don't know why they're like that, but it is what it is. So a lot of times I find it's very effective to put in legislation and start moving it. And sometimes ultimately um, it becomes uh, not necessary to do. And sometimes you're also um, just ahead of the time. Recently in the um, New York State budget, we passed two major pieces of legislation. One's called Cap and Invest. The other one is called um, Build Public Renewables. Um, both were legislations that um, I wrote initially, um, and I had been working on both of them for probably about three or four years, and without um, much luck, um, actually build public renewables, we were able to pass out the Senate two years in a row, um, but the Assembly, we couldn't get to take it up, the governor wasn't really interested, and then all of a sudden they got religion around it, and we were able to put both ideas into the budget and, and then start moving them. Um, and so, you know, sometimes it, just, it takes persistence. Um, but oftentimes, sometimes, you know, you're you're um, you're ahead of your time and you have to kind of put the, you know, the legislative idea out there and continue to work it. Um, the average bill and this is not nothing like phenomenal. The average bill in the state of New York takes three years to pass. Right. And so the, the legislative process is not a revolutionary process. It doesn't happen quickly. It's a slow, methodical process when it works at all. Um, and so you need people. And this is part of going back to that first question about you need people who are not there, um, you don't need Hussein Bolt, right? You know, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon and you need people who are gonna be prepared for the long haul, for the long fight, and who are gonna be persistent um, to make sure that the ideas and the solutions that are important for the community actually get done. Well, I'm gonna ask you to put your professor hat on for a moment. Okay. And you mentioned that, you know, the average bill takes about three years. This is in the New York state legislature. Um, if we take that to Congress, it's probably longer. Mm -hmm. um, was it designed that way? Yes, purposefully, right? I mean, the process is supposed to be a deliberative process, right? Uh, if you look at even the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Constitution in, in 300 some odd years has only been, um, you know, amended 28 times, right? It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not supposed to be a long process, right? So one of the things that we all joke about that comes from Congress is they say the House of Representatives is the people's house, and they say um, the Senate is the deliberative house, right? And so we say the same thing in the Senate, right? Where a lot of times um, we're seen as kind of holding things up um, because we're trying to be more deliberative about it and seeing whether we actually need to change the law in, in the state of New York in order to um, codify a particular idea. But the process is supposed to be a slow, um, incremental, deliberative process. Because if you just change things willy-nilly, um, you're changing it fast, faster than the actually implementation of it. This has actually been one of our arguments around bail reform. We did bail reform three years, and then in every year the governors are coming back and asking us to change it. And we're like, how can you possibly see the impact of it? Because you haven't had a chance to see that it actually work, right? And so you need time once you actually implement something um, to, to understand the cause and effects of, of those changes. And so it is supposed to be a slow and deliberative process. Well, this explains it in terms of the many, I mean, you and I and so so many people are part of fights that feel like decades, right. <laughs> like decades long, even on a national stage, right? Like mm -hmm. you feel like you've been fighting for it for so long and mm -hmm. there, it does seem to be this push of like, well, we need to think about it. It's just like, well, what do you need to think about? People need to eat and we need more money for people to eat. Like what, <laughs> like it seems like, you know, it's taken long, but it was purposely designed that way for it not to be all willy nilly, as you and say. Another piece too is, and again, this is, this goes for both the, the national stage 
and the state stage in almost every state is that the process is an adversarial process. And so when you look at, for instance, the 63 members of the Senate is that we cover the range, right? So I cover a very urban community in Brooklyn, um, but there are other communities even in, in New York City um, that are very different than mine and where my colleagues have very different ideas um, than we have. And then you have, you know, rural communities and suburban communities and ex-urban communities and mixed communities. And you have white and, and black and Latino and Asian. And we have openly gay communities and, you know, re, you know, religious, religious Jews, Jewish communities. And so you have this kind of milieu of, of different interests um, that have to be balanced in the context of the policymaking. And so you need time to work through all of the, both the politics and the understanding so that people can be educated as these changes are made. And how does that diversity play out for legislators who do represent districts that include all of those myriad of different communities, right? You're Maybe you're addressing legislation or a law that would have impact on just one, but other people got something to say, <laughs> or you don't have something to say. How do you balance yeah. um, being able to, you know, listen to all of the feedback and that some people may be more vocal than others, but the impact won't be the same. I'm gonna talk about two con, con I'm gonna talk about two concepts in the context of keeping my um, professor hat on, right? So the first is a long-going debate about whether legislators are representatives or leaders, right? And you're a representative when you're just doing what people want you to do. You're a leader when you're doing what the right thing is. And it may not, it may be different than what the community is saying, right? And that's a long-going debate, both in communities and in and in the uh, um the literature, the scholarly literature, right? Um, I, I lean on a guy named Martin Linsky um, out of Harvard, and he wrote a book called Leadership on the Line. And in that book, you know, Martin Linsky argues that a leadership is not being a title, right? Being a leader is not a title, it's an action, it's a verb. And that you're only a leader when you're doing something that is politically dangerous, essentially, right? So if people if people are getting hit at a at a intersection and you say, let's put up a light here, and everybody's like, yeah, you should put up a light you're not being a leader. All you're doing is being a representative, right? You're doing what people need you to do, right? I always use the example of gay marriage in the state of New York. I remember, like, I had never had a group of pastors from my district come up and see me on any issue, not on housing, not on education, um, not on transportation, not on, you know, healthcare. And they came to see me when we started, you know, talking about um, gay marriage. And they were, they told me that if we passed this legislation that they were going to not let me in their churches anymore and that they were going to campaign against me. And I still supported the notion of gay marriage. And um, that's a kind of a, an example of leadership versus just being a representative. And you have a lot more representative moments than you have leadership moments, right? But those leadership moments are, are the moments in which you distinguish yourself um, from both your colleagues, but also from the people in your community and um, really making sure that when it's time to do the right thing, that you stand up and, and do the right thing. And so it becomes difficult. And that's why you have, you know, um, former President Kennedy talking about profiles and coverage, um, because a lot of times, you know, you know, uh, politicians um, are not profiles and coverage. And a lot of times they will acquiesce to their communities, even when they know that the, 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 that the general opinion in that community is the wrong one. Mm -hmm. which, is, so, which, by way, which by the way is what you're seeing with the republicans nationally right mm. right and if you if you look at um like what some of the the, the folks are saying there um 
there's a guy named Jeff, somebody, he's a Democratic um, legislator, I want to say out of Illinois someplace, and he's been like on social media just talking about it. And he says like how some of, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others, how they act in closed door meetings is very different than how they act in open meetings because they're, they're putting on a show. And they know that the stuff that they're saying is wrong. They know that supporting George Soros is wrong. They know that these these conspiracies around Santos, you mean? Sorry, sorry what did I say? George you Soros. Said Soros. <laughs> yeah, sorry, all that's been in the same conversation. George um, right. Santos. Um, they know that like he's wrong, and they're politically doing the wrong thing. Sorry, George Soros. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's, don't you it, know? It, that's where we all get our checks from. You can't be saying. I mean, I ain't got one yet, but like possibly. So we got to make sure we say his name right. <laughs> right. But but like they know that like they know who won the election. Right. Like no, they know that Trump is wrong. But there's a lack of political courage there. Right. Okay. And not just it's not just a lack of political courage because they think they're going to get extended. There's a lack of political courage because they don't want to lose their elections. Because part of what you saw, right, is even in with um, what's old girl's name from from um, from Wyoming, who's um, Cheney. Um, yes, yes, Liz Cheney. Right? Liz Cheney losing her seat. Now, this is somebody who comes from a long conservative, well-known. Her father was the vice president. Her father was the advisor to other presidents, and she lost her seat because she stood up for the truth and people are terrified and there's a lack of political courage there. And so, yeah. you know, when, when people sometimes, um, you know, you know, and, and people like that, there's no reward for that. Right. There's no reward for that. And yeah, and we so, saw that even during the, what was it during the um, affordable care act, that's right. right. Where a lot of people lost their seats because they were like, yeah, no, people need this. And, you know, people were got, you know, riled up and they lost their seats in supporting people having health care. Right. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, this is this is the again, that balance. And people are afraid. People have careers. And and by the way, those of us who, who do like we pay, we feed our families this way. Right. So like losing your right, people are like, oh, you're scared to lose your seat. Yeah, because if I lose my seat, I have to go look for a job. Right. Another job. And not that that's fatal for for you. And, and a lot of people leave politics and, and have wonderful lives and make you know, exponentially more money, but also a lot of us have committed our lives to this kind of work, right? And so, um, you know, who wants to lose an election, right? Like, you know, um, and so like, you know, but it's a balance, right? And you really have to kind of believe in your convictions and get to a place in which you say, having this seat is less important than doing the right thing for people who need help. And for me, what I looked at, when I go back to my example of looking at the voter around gay marriage is that the state of New York, understand marriage as a contract that's all it was and there was no reason to deny this group of people access to that contract period it did not ever force people to marry people in churches or synagogues or temples or any other religious organizations that didn't want to do the marriages it didn't force you to do any of those things but it did say that these folks who loved each other were entitled to be engaged in this contract if that's what they wanted right and if you notice Two things didn't happen, right? We didn't fall apart and the rapture didn't come. And so, you know, I do understand that it was the right thing to do. I would do it again. Um, and, you know, you, you, you don't look forward to those kind of fights, um, but you also have to be in a place where you're not afraid of them. Yeah.
So, you know, one of the, I had the great fortune of reviewing and adding comments for uh, Pat Libby's book, The Empowered Citizen's Guide mm -hmm. uh, to Passing a Law That Matters. And for those who are interested in the lawmaking process and what you can do, this is a good, um, a good book that sort of lays out the steps of um, doing that when you are not the elected official. And I'd like to point out that actually, uh, engaging elected officials, like in terms of actually passing this law, um, is not even until step nine in her book, <laughs> right? Of like that. Yeah. So I want to talk to you. I, I want to ask you, uh, being that we are in civics class, what would you tell constituents or just uh, um, folks in general across the country that are thinking about have an issue that they've had for some time um, that their organization or even just them as an individual think that should be implemented on the local level, on the state level, or even on the federal level that, um, you know, from your expertise that they should think about doing um, regarding that issue? How should they approach you? How should, you know, they engage with their state reps on this? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, um, again, keeping in that mode of being a college professor, I'm going to lean on Max Weber, right, German sociologist. And Max Weber says that politics is the acquisition, use, and maintenance of power, right? He further goes on to say is that power is the ability of a social group to see its will done, even in the face of others, right? That second definition is really important, right? Power is the ability of a social group to realize its will even in opposition of others, right? Which means that, that power in the context of the way we talk about it institutionally, institutionally is, a, is a group dynamic, right? It's a numbers game, right? Um, a lot of people know that um, right before I got elected, I had worked for a number of years for the first African-American elected statewide, which was a gentleman named H. Carl McCall, who was a state controller. And Carl used to tell me all the time that um, you only need one skill in politics. You gotta know how to count. Right, which is, I think, how I wound up as the whip for so many years, right? Is understanding where votes are. And so I tell people that if you want to get involved in the process, um, one, start where you are, right? Um, two, you have to understand politics as a process and not an event. Let me say that again. You got to understand politics as a process, not an event. When we talk about politics, first thing people say is, oh, I'm, let, I'm registered to vote or I vote all the time or da 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 da. Right. This is not just about voting. You have to be involved in the whole process, including the candidate development and selection. Right. And that's one of the problems that people complain about is that they always feel like when they go to the ballot box, that it's a, you know, a false choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. The way you get out of that false dichotomy is by working to find good representatives and good candidates in the community and working you know, on their campaigns, helping them raise money, helping them knock on doors, helping them develop a, a strong organizational structure that can win an election, right? And again, going back to number one, which is work where you are, is that if you live in an apartment building, join a, you know, join your tennis association. If you live in a house, join your block association or your civic association. Um, if you go to a church, synagogue, temple, um, get involved in a ministry. It doesn't have to be a political ministry, but get involved in some kind of ministry um, in your church, temple, synagogue, um, mosque, whatever, right? Um, but organize where you are. Join your local NAACP. Joy, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but people should be involved in their local NAACP or their urban league, um, their fraternity, their sorority, their Masonic group. Um, you know, find some group of people 
to organize with. And that becomes the base of you being able to go to an elected official and say, here I am with this group of people, tenants, block association, civic association, church, temple, mosque, synagogue. Um, you know, here's my you know sorority group. And we believe the following. And we think you should do the following. And we respond to that. Um, I tell people all the time, 20 phone calls to my office will disrupt the day. 20. There's not no whole big you know, number, but you get to 20 people calling about the same thing. I then get a call saying, Hey, what's going on with X, Y, and Z because we're getting calls, right? If it's five or six, my staff will typically handle it, but you start getting 10, 20 calls. People are going to start paying attention, let alone more. Right. Um, and so it's a numbers game. Um, and being involved locally will allow you to be able to impact things globally. And so, um, you know, people should kind of understand that process. And again, um, commit themselves to be engaged in, in the political process. You know, I never thought about the NAACP before. I need to like research what they're doing and see, Brooklyn, see if it fit. Brooklyn has a really good NAACP chapter. Um, um, the, the leadership is a little shaky, but... but the, oh, got um, it. <laughs> you know, but you know, not everyone can do everything, you know, that's, so that's, I go from the, there. Those who can't do have podcasts. I mean, I'm just... That's what you say. <laughs> No joke, no joke, no joke. Oh, my gosh. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And then I want to talk to you about the latest political battleground, which is state legislatures all across the country, because y'all y'all be in the news um, <laughs> like everywhere. It's some big fights happening. So we'll take our last break and we'll be right back. How can it be? Back to Sunday Civics. I'm going to look into that. Um, NAACP. Who would have thunk? Um, so we're back with Senator Kevin Parker out of New York State Legislature. The, also the um, majority whip um, in the body. And Kevin, you know, over the last couple of years, there has been a lot of fights. Usually you would only hear about what's happening in the state legislature's on um, if you lived in that particular state, right? You wouldn't see it on MSNBC and CNN, but there are real battlefronts um, happening in the states as it pertains to issues, whether it be um, women's uh, body autonomy, whether it be privacy rights, there's a lot of different issues. What you know, on the one hand, it feels good that people are paying attention <laughs> to state legislatures. And on the other hand, um, it's also scary what is happening um, in state legislatures across the country. What's your read on it? Yeah. So first of all, um, you know, just FYI, I'm a, I'm a Gold Life member of the, of the Brooklyn chapter of the NAACP uh, and support it and support you and, and love you and the work that you've been doing there. Um, but also I'm involved as it directs to the question I'm very active with the um, NBCSL, the National Black Caucus of State Legislators, as well as the Eastern Regional Conference of CSG, which is the Council on State Governments. And in fact, I'm the uh, chair of the Council on Concerns, um, um, dealing with kind of, um, you know, Black, Latino, Asian, and Indigenous communities 
um, in the uh, Eastern Regional Conference of the Council and State Governments, right? And so um, this is important and keeping on my, again, professor hat, is that we have to understand federalism, right? So we have to understand that the country was created by states that created a federal government. The federal government did not create the states, right? So the 13 colonies, you know, um, the Articles of Confederation, then later on the U.S. Constitution that created, you know, the United States government. And what they did at that time was held on to what they thought were the most important powers for the states and allowed this, the federal government to do the things that it had to do, right? You know, um, interstate commerce, international relations, the ability to declare war, right? Ability to print money, right? Like that's kind of like the federal government's job, right? When you talk about the things that we most of the time talk about in the context of politics, education, healthcare, housing, um, mental health, um, public protection, transportation, those things are actually decided mostly on the federal level. I'm sorry, on the state level, not the federal level, right? Those things are decided on the federal, on the state level. And so like a lot of times people have been saying to me, oh, you should run for Congress, but I've never was interested in international relations. I wasn't in interested in you know, interstate commerce, right? The issues that I'm concerned about, which are the bread and butter issues of our communities are by and far decided on the um, state level, right? And so even when you see federal government involved, they're usually bribing their way into it. So for instance, my best example is like when you talk about um, federal highways, how did they get built? Um, and, and they got built based on the whole notion also of lowering, you know, at one point it was now 65 by the time the speed limit was 55. How they got everybody to be 55 miles an hour is they attached it to federal funds and said, hey, we're going to give you money to build federal highways, but your your speed limit in the state needs to be 55 miles an hour. And it was so much money. People were like, great, we'll take the money. We'll make, build better roads and we'll just lower the we'll lower the uh, speed limit to 55 miles an hour. Right. So they kind of bribe their way in because they don't really have a constitutional way to come in and tell a state you have to make your your uh, speed limit. X, Y, Z, because it's not their power. The, that power actually lies with the state government. So even as we talk about criminal justice reform, we talk about gun laws, we talk about, um, you know, um, you know, there's many of the things that, you know, a, a woman's right to choose. The vast majority of those rights are actually decided on the state level more than the federal level, right? Um, and so it's been important um, to like pay attention um, to who your state legislators are, right? And this is what the Tea Party did and how they were able to capture the Republican Party is they actually built their, their movement from the ground up, taking over local city councils and county legislators and school boards, right? To build this infrastructure that was eventually able to essentially capture on um, the Republican Party that left, that, you know, made John Boehner leave, that made, um, you know, um, Paul Ryan leave um, in the midst. You know, we're talking about like the second best job outside of president of the United States in politics, right? Like there's like two really good jobs, right? President of the United States, Speaker of the House, right? Like, and two of Republicans just walked away, right? Um, because they, they, those bodies just became so unruly and, and Kevin McCarthy is finding that same dynamic. Um, but part of, you know, of, of the dynamic that you're seeing is that those members in Congress um, are being upheld by a bunch of nuts underneath them um, who are controlling state legislatures, controlling uh, county county legislators, um, you know, school boards, city councils um, who have similar, uh, you know, ideologies, right? 
Um, and so the more that we, uh, you know, those of us who think of ourselves as progressive and those of us who want uh, an America that's built on truth, that's built on opportunity, that's built on equity, um, we're going to have to develop a movement that um, likewise is not a top down from Congress down to city councils, but really the other way around is build it from the ground up. And so we need to um, build movements that are based on taking over school boards and city councils and state, uh, sorry, county legislators and then, and then state legislatures. That is the way um, to get members of Congress um, to do the things that you that you need and want them to do. But by the time you've taken over um, a number of um, county legislators, uh, you really have gotten a lot of the things that you want already. And that's part of what they're, um, you know, what you're seeing. That, that, that the danger now, particularly around, let's say, the issue of a woman's right to choose is primarily around the fact that so many of them have gone into Republican hands. And the Republicans are, are now um, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Tea Party. And we don't talk about it now in that way anymore because it just becomes so per per pervasive that they're the same. And so, you know, the Borg have taken over um, resistance is futile. And, um, you know, and those of us who still fight on, on the side of truth and righteousness and justice, um, you know, have a real fight on our hands to take back these legislatures um, and make sure that we have control of our states. I knew the nerd would come out at some point. <laughs> I knew, I knew we couldn't go a whole hour without you bringing it out from there. You know, but this is, but this is part of the thing that makes me so, um, you know, I don't, I'm not as like concerned about a lot of Supreme Court cases, right? But like, you know, and also partly because I live in the state of New York, which I have to, you know, like I feel like my state will protect me. Mm. Um, but we also have um, a history of electing Republican governors, so I can't be too comfortable. Mm. Um, but the, the what is it? The um, Moore versus Her Harper case on this mm. independent state legislature theory um, in that uh, that is before the Supreme Court as to you know, that the state legislature can um, have the ultimate power over federal elections and that the courts don't or, you know, the federal government. I was like, oh, wait, no, wait, that's <laughs> that's that's totally scary. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, but, you know, the Supreme Court, it's not like you have, you know, a voice in that say, unless you have a voice on who the president is. And we have, you know, a voice on that coming up. But Senator Parker. Yes. Thank you so much for making time, you know, for little old me, you know, to, you know, to come before the Anytime. Sunday civics classroom. I appreciate. How can people follow you? Yeah, so people, you know, I'm on almost every um, major platform. I still may even have my MySpace page up, but um, no, please no. don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, people can find me on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Senator Parker, um, or. Kevin Parker for state Senate. I usually have two pages, a, a campaign page and a government page, but my government page is usually on Senator Kevin Parker. And so you can find me on all those platforms. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so follow me. Let's let's chat it up. I'd love to hear people's feedback. Love to hear ideas about what they think we should be doing to make New York State better. Um, and looking forward to more conversation with you, but more importantly, more building with the NWCP and, and other constituency groups um, around the state, um, you know, to make sure that the Empire State continues to lead. Thank you so much. And thank you to Senator Kevin Parker. And thank you for making it to class this morning. We'll be back next week with more of Sunday Civics. Have a great day. It's who we are.